Welcome to the Compassion Parenting Podcast, helping moms to love wisely and well. I'm your host, Dr. Mary Wild, integrative pediatrician and mom of eight sons who continually challenge and teach me. Over the years, I've learned that rather than outward technique, it's the internal landscape of the heart that affects parenting more than anything else. Mothering is about being, not just doing. You have everything you need within you to become the parent you want to be. So let's bring it out. Welcome to the Compassion Parenting Podcast. Today we have the privilege of speaking with Dr. Ron Siegel. He's a psychotherapist, a part-time professor at Harvard Medical School, an author and a speaker related to mindfulness and how to improve our emotional well-being through mindfulness practices. His most recent book is The Extraordinary Gift of Being Ordinary, Finding Happiness Right Where You Are. Thank you, Dr. Siegel, for being with us. Thanks so much for inviting me. So as a pediatrician who focuses on uh, mind-body medicine and particularly um, high-performing kids dealing with anxiety, I was so drawn to your book and what it offers. Um, So let's begin just talking about what you call the extraordinary gift of being ordinary. So how in the world can we give this gift to ourselves and our children in this world of striving? Well, I I think first we have to look at um, both how come we strive so much and how it's been working out for us. Um, The the how come part actually goes back to you know, our, our history as human beings, you know, how the brain developed and evolved over time. And, uh, you know, we see in so many other species of animals, the same thing that we see in ourselves, which is a concern for pecking orders, a concern for who's dominant, who's on top, who's, uh, who's got the most. And, uh, you know, at least evolutionary theorists um, assume that, uh, that the reason for this is because those animals historically and our ancestors historically who were on top had a better chance of passing their genes on to the next generation, had more resources to take care of their kids. So we developed this very strong propensity to want to be on top ourselves. And, mm-hmm. you know, the way this shows up in human, you know, not other animals that shows up with literal pecking orders, right? Um, But the way this shows up in humans, in addition to to behavior that way, is with a constant um, stream of social comparison going through our minds. We are constantly thinking, how am I doing and how do I compare to others? And it shows up in our hearts and minds as fluctuating self-esteem. You know, one moment feeling, hey, I'm doing okay. I'm, I'm being successful. My kid's thriving. I'm being a, you know, I'm being a successful parent or I'm doing well at work or, or I'm being a good person or people love me or what, whatever our criteria is for measuring ourselves. And, and the fascinating anything is we all have different criteria, but we have in common is we all measure ourselves. And, you know, sometimes, sometimes we have these moments where it's like, yeah, it's working well, but usually they don't last that long. It's, it's not long before we hit a bump in the road, something goes wrong and we wind up feeling in some way, not good enough in some way inadequate. 
and uh, and it's partly because we, you know, we we just our brains are simply wired to do this, which may have been good for passing on our genes historically, but it's not good for happiness. It really is not. It, it is not good for our our well being. And you know, there's there's a, a couple of reasons for this. Um, one of them is that. Uh, you know, what goes up comes down. So even if we have been successful, let's say we're really, we, you know, our self-esteem is closely connected with a, being a successful athlete. And we're so good that we become a gold medalist um, in the Olympics. We actually win the gold. What are the chances we're going to win it again four years from now? Mm, not so great. Eight years from now, diminishing <laughs> further. Um, and on top of this, we suffer from what um, we might call, it's a sort of fancy phrase for something simple, narcissistic recalibration, which is the things that once floated our boat after a while, we become habituated to those, and then we need more and more just to feel like we're succeeding somehow, like we're being good enough um, in whatever we're doing. And you know, you can see this over the course of our lifetime, right? That there was a time when us grown-ups, you know, when we were able to put those multicolored uh, donut rings on the pole in the right size order so that it looked like a cone <laughs> or a Christmas tree, right? We felt, hey, you know, I really succeeded. Look, mommy, look, daddy, look at what I could do. Probably doesn't work anymore, you know, for, for us. And, you know, the same for so many different accomplishments, right? Uh, walking to the store uh, ourselves or riding a bicycle or graduating elementary school. And, and this goes, you know, goes on and on. You know, I often... Um, I do a lot of trainings for psychotherapists and psychotherapists generally worked hard, went to graduate school, you know, received a degree that allows them to practice and uh, they work really hard. And, you know, at the time of getting that degree felt pretty good. Hey, look at me. I've done this. Yeah. Um, I won't put you on the spot, but I imagine when you got your medical degree, you felt pretty darn good about that. Right. Um, you know, but then I say to the therapist, how many of you woke up this morning feeling, I feel so proud, I feel so good about myself, I have my degree. And, you know, everybody starts laughing as, as, right. as you're laughing now, because we've habituated to it. Sometimes one, you know, lone recently minted therapist will raise their hand and say, why is everybody laughing? I still feel good about it. But none of these things, none of these things last. So, um, so it turns out to be a very unreliable source of well-being, these kinds of achievements where we're comparing ourselves to others or comparing ourselves to some inner ideal, sometimes coming up on top, but other times feeling not good enough and almost always feeling stressed out, trying to feel good enough. Yes. And, and could I just interject here, Ron, um, as you're talking about this, it makes me think about for children, there might be certain moments where they may be particularly vulnerable to this type of new comparison, this recalibration, like, you know, so often our kids, you know, we do a really good job of helping them feel cherished and valued at home. And then suddenly, you know, they're sent off to, you know, the, the schoolyard. Right, <laughs> and, right, absolutely. And, then, and then, you know, there are different periods of time where the sea keeps getting bigger and bigger. And, and, you know, a big one too is, is when kids go off to college, when maybe they've been at the top of their high school class, and then they're suddenly in this place where everybody is like them. And, and this, this, um, need to differentiate and, um, be recognized can really 
um, eroded our happiness. So, so. absolutely, uh, you know, the uh, you're you're raising such an important point because um, part of what you're describing is our reference group changes, yes. right? So that, you know, because we're always constructing our sense of am I okay or not by comparing ourselves to others. I mean, if, if, if I think I'm intelligent, well, if I really examine that, I'm thinking, I'm looking at other people and I'm saying, well, I'm more intelligent than a lot of them, even if there are others that I'm less intelligent, to, but there's a comparison going on. And, and when we succeed at things to the degree to which we do, we get into these other comparison groups. So um, I've, I've supervised, you know, undergraduates at Harvard mm -hmm. and uh, oh my gosh, you know, they were at the top of their class and now they're like, eh, average at best, right? And, right. and how that, you know, how crushing and how, how difficult that is. And it's partly because we're barking up the wrong tree. And, yeah. and you know, this is, this is part of what's, what is going to be necessary for freeing us is realizing that we actually can never win at this game. I mean, I can name, you know, a couple of billionaires who are competing recently about who can go up in a rocket ship that they, their company built and stay there, stay up there longer, you know, <laughs> at, at some ridiculous, you know, carbon footprint. What's this all about, right? It just, it just keeps, keeps going and we, we can't actually win at it, mm -hmm. but we become very, very addicted to it because I, I, and let me just ask, you know, our, our listeners now to, to just do a brief experiment of just, you know, think of something that kind of matters to you for feeling good about yourself, whether it be intelligence or kindness or being attractive or fit or um, capable or probably, you know, um, competent as a parent, uh, yeah. since many of our, our, our listeners are parents. And just remember a time where you felt validated at that where you felt like yeah i am doing a good job yeah i am successful I, I i do have this quality and how that feels in the body you know just this feeling of we we have phrases for it you know chest swelling with pride right because we we sit up a little taller and 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 we feel this 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 rise in in, in our body and it feels pretty good yeah but it doesn't last and all we have to do is remember the opposite when we felt defeated, like we didn't do a good job, like others were better at things than we were. And that collapse in which, you know, the shoulders round and the belly um, feels empty. And that feels so bad. And whenever there's a huge contrast between one thing that feels really good and something else that feels really bad, it's ripe for addiction. Um, yeah. You know, th think of... Uh, most of us don't have experience with crack cocaine, but we've at least read about it. You know, people feel really good for a little while and then really bad afterwards. And what happens when we we feel really bad? Well, I want more crack. Well, that's what happens to us in this whole, you know, self-esteem, social comparison realm. When we feel a sense of failure, we think, how do I scramble and win again? But that leaves us constantly stressed out. And because we can never rest, we can never really win. Our comparison group changes. You know, now we're just meh, you know, yes. great. And, you know, and it's, it's terribly painful. So, so really the first step in getting out of this is just realizing, oh my gosh, it's so pervasive. I've been hooked on this my whole life and it hasn't actually worked. Yes, just that awareness, I think, is so key. And then moving into like how we pivot, how we um, kind of embrace the ordinary when right. in the past we've, we've thought about 
like, well, I don't want to be ordinary. I need to stand out. So how can we make this pivot inwardly? It's a little hard, partly because there's so, so we've got this hard wiring that predisposes us to want to be on top, if you will. It can be different for different different people, and there's a lot of cultural differences also. But what we have in common is wanting to somehow feel good about ourselves. And you know, if we're going to uh, shift out of that, once we start to see that it's not working, then it's a matter of looking at what are more sustainable pathways to well-being? Because it turns out that a lot of the more sustainable pathways to well-being are actually pretty good antidotes to this hardwired and so often socially reinforced message. Because, you know, I, I mean, when I when I wrote the book, you know, I, I got um, uh, input from one friend who said, you can't use that title. Nobody's going to want to read a book about being ordinary. Everybody wants to be special. <laughs> and it's really true because all the messages we get, turn on the TV, you know, surf the net. All the images are, if you can be better than everybody else, if you buy my product, you'll be better than everybody else. People will see you as better by, than everybody else, and then you'll feel happy. So, so it's really bucking the tide, not only of our instinctual wiring, but also bucking the tide of the culture. But the good news is we can do it. It starts by seeing how what we've been doing so far hasn't been working. And then, then it moves toward what are the reliable alternatives? Now, probably the most powerful alternative to this is what psychologists call safe social connection. Mm -hmm. Basically being with other human beings with whom we can be honest and instead of posturing, sharing our real experience. Um, uh, one of the book chapters is called Make a Connection not an impression. And I think that's a pretty good touchstone for this. So often we'll meet people or even be at parties or social events, and we'll kind of want to show people that we're okay, or even that we're successful, or, you know, show off in some way or another, even if we're not like, you know, super obnoxious about it. We want to, <laughs> we want to, you know, put our best foot forward in some way, because so many of us have this um, fantasy that, the way to feel loved, the way to feel connected is by being special so that people will want to be with us. They'll think of us as, as, as good or a winner and, and then they'll gravitate toward us. I mean, so many people, you know, think of the, the dating world, right? You know, well, I've got to be attractive. I've got to be successful. I've got to be witty. I've got to be, you know, all of these things. And then people will want, will, will like me, you know, and, and will be able to feel loved. And there is an alternative. The alternative is to be really honest. You know, those moments in which we're with a friend and we're talking about, you know, not just how great things are, but how hard it is, for example, to be a parent, how many <laughs> moments we're feeling like, oh, my God, you know, everybody else seems to be able to parent their kids. Well, why am I the one who's screaming? Why am I the one who, you know, who feels lost, um, you know? But we're actually talking to the person and the person is saying, oh, I know how you feel. The same thing happens to me. In those moments, all this comparison stuff starts to settle out. It starts to be less, less intense. And in fact, our sense of self shifts. It shifts, it shifts from here I am, me. What do people think about me? How am I doing? Am I living up to my potential? To we become part of a we in that moment, even if the we is just me and my friend, yeah. and we become a separate entity. So the whole sense of self becomes this connected sense of self. And that also helps to diminish the 
uh, the importance of this, because when we feel part of a we, we're we're just somewhat less concerned about that. So that that that's one avenue. I'll, I'll name a few avenues, and then we can we can yes, maybe uh, dig into them all in depth. Um, another one is simply shifting from uh, proving ourselves to engagement. You know, in so many activities, here I am talking to you on the podcast. Yeah, there's an inner spectator in the background with a little narrative about, was that a good story to tell? Are you sounding <laughs> intelligent here? Are people going to be engaged in this or not? That's part of the story. It's not going away, right? That's my evolutionary and cultural inheritance. But I can, instead of taking that super seriously, and instead of putting most of my energy into how do I look good here? How do I make you like me? I can think, well, what would be most useful for people to hear and really focus on the task at hand? This gets us into what, um, what are called flow experiences in, uh, in psychology. There was a, um, a Hungarian psychologist, um, Cheek sent me high. Uh, but he he developed this idea of flow, which, which is that sometimes we're engaged in activities. I know you're in Utah, so I'll use a skiing example. Yeah. Um, you know, like the difference between skiing down a mountain and thinking, how am I doing? How do I look? Am I doing better than I used to? Am I improving? Versus just being in it just being in the body, feeling the body moving. And we go back and forth between these, but when we're just in flow, when we're just in engagement, we're not all self-conscious. We're not talking to ourselves about ourselves so much. Our attention is actually engaged in the moment. Mm -hmm. And this is a place where mindfulness practices are super, super helpful. Because mm -hmm. in mindfulness practices, we spend time, instead of just being lost in our thoughts as we normally are, we actually bring the attention back to what's happening here and now on a sensory level, whether following the breath or noticing the sensations of the feet on the ground as we're walking or listening or seeing the sights and sounds of nature. In all of these circumstances, we're stepping out of the thought stream and becoming present to sensory reality. And this helps lighten up our preoccupation with the thought stream. And it's the inner spectator that's always evaluating us that's living in the thought stream all the time. We're not going to stop, but we can't kill it off, but we can make it be somewhat less central. Yeah. So another avenue forward is to practice engagement whenever possible. And in whatever we do to say, hmm, how might I do the same task? a little less focused on succeeding or not, or winning or not, or how am I looking? And a little bit more focused on just being there, just being present to the task. And that includes parenting, right? Rather than, you know, how successful am I being at creating, you know, the most perfect child to, to, yeah. to a little bit from that to, you know, what's it feel like just to hold my kid's hand? What's it feel like just to hug my child? What's it feel like to be an imperfect parent with an imperfect child just being here together? So engagement mm -hmm. is another one. And I'll, I'll throw out one more and there, there it's a long list, but, um, yeah. and maybe the, the third big one is gratitude. Um, which is taking a moment to realize how blessed we are and, and, and what we've got. Um, that, hey, I'm actually alive. Hey, I actually have a child or, or children. What a miracle that is. Or even look at that tree. My gosh, you know, the, the, you know a tree is amazing that it grows from this little seed and, and turns into this thing. Uh, there's a Vietnamese Zen master um, 
named uh, Thich Nhat Hanh. And uh, one of the things he said is, uh, is some people think, you know, you know, it's a miracle to walk on water. Well, maybe it is, but it's a miracle to walk on land. Isn't this amazing that this, you know, that, that, that this organism was born, that it knows how to walk, that, that there's, you know, all of this life around us, which is constantly changing and, and growing and evolving. You know, it's, it's about gratitude for the very simple little things in our lives. And in a moment of gratitude, two things are happening. One is we're a bit less focused on what I desire and what I need, right? Because mm -hmm. we're grateful for what we have. Mm -hmm. um, and gratitude is always gratitude for something. It connects us to something. Now, for some people, it's, you know, it's in a theological context, grateful to God. For other people, it's grateful to nature or grateful to fate or grateful even to luck that I happen to be alive and intact at this moment. Mm -hmm. um, but in this moment of gratitude, we're connected to something larger. And, and it's this kind of connectedness to something larger that, again, is such a powerful antidote to being so preoccupied with me and how am I doing? And I think this connects just so well to um, the title, the subtitle of your book about finding happiness right where you are, because it's just just being where you are and then noticing the the delights in that space. And so I love that. And I think um, what a wonderful shift from this grasping and striving, this unsustainable um, sense of comparison to connection and presence and gratitude. So yeah. I, I love that. Let's talk a little bit about, you know, these practices and, and this paradigm shift in the context of anxiety. Um, I work a lot with kids that experience anxiety um, and, and often their parents are anxious as well. And it's partly because of the the trap we've gotten into the self-evaluative trap um do you have anything um to say specifically to these parents and these kids absolutely well you know and, and um gosh you know I, I live in the boston area where there's an elite institution of higher learning on every street corner yes. you know? <laughs> i mean you know yeah there's harvard and mit but ev ev even the ones that aren't quite as famous if they weren't in boston they'd be like oh wow you know right. and, you know so so i i totally understand this this epidemic really of anxiety and particularly achievement oriented anxiety we'll also talk about social media in a moment because i think that's yes. important. That, that that adds to it but just on the achievement front because you mentioned that there you know there are all these kids that are you know we joke harvard or bust right Is the, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and sometimes it's Harvard and bust. <laughs> Harvard and but right. Well, because the well, the fantasy is if only I could get to the top in you know in, right. in this way, um, uh, you know, the Stanford of the East, if you will. <laughs> if, if, only I could, <laughs> if only I can get to the top um, in this way, then I'll be happy, right? And you know, the problem is, of course, it doesn't work. But oh boy, does it stress people out um, on the way. You know, one way. There's something very powerful that parents can do that 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 can be really helpful here. Because so uh, let let me let me um, outline sort of a typical situation and and two ways of possibly handling it. Mm -hmm. um, let's say that um, uh, that uh, Susie comes home 
really deflated because she really, really wanted to be on the school softball team. Mm -hmm. And she didn't make the cut. It was one of these competitive things where only some of the kids are allowed to be on the team. Mm -hmm. And she came home. And if Susie's mom or dad are hooked on this idea that, well, success is the answer, then they would try to help Susie by saying, oh, honey, I do understand that that's disappointing. But remember, you were great on the basketball team in the fall. In fact, your team <laughs> went to the regional championships and you were a high scorer. And look how well you did in mathletes this year. You know, you were, you know, you were one of the, you were one of the best kids. You are a bright kid. You're athletically ta- talented. You're great. Yeah, you've hit a, a bump in the road, but you're going to be a winner. Um, maybe overstating it a little bit, but in many ways, the same way we, when we have a self-esteem crash, want to feel better quickly by having some more crack cocaine and (laughs) having a new success, we try to help our kids feel better in in the same way. Mm -hmm. An alternative would be to try to help Susie develop more self-compassion, very much in line with the theme of your podcast. And what what helping her develop more self-compassion would look like would be to say, oh, sweetheart, I know that's so hard. You know, when I was your age, I was really into drama and I really, really wanted to make the school play one year and I didn't make it. You know, I didn't get the part. And I would, you know, I was crestfallen, you know, for quite a little while. I, you know, I felt depressed. I felt inadequate. It was really painful. So I know these, these disappointments, they really hurt. And it's really easy to start telling ourselves a story that, that we're not good enough because of this. This is so hard. And, you know, this happens to all of us. This happens to everybody. Sometimes we win, sometimes we lose. And the really hard thing, but that that I've gradually learned myself is how to be nice to myself when it happens. Like, you're okay, sweetheart. Of course we have we win some and and we lose some. Let me give you a hug. I love you so much. Yes, I love that. That's that's such a different feeling. And it's really connection, not okay, let's like paste on all your badges from the past to kind of band-aid this wound. Um it, it's like let's connect, let's let's feel this feeling and feel this recognize feeling. that um it's part of our experience of right. life. I think that as parents, sometimes we really have to go against the flow to to maintain or kind of to tease ourselves out of this comparison culture. I remember with my first son, I um, he had a friend and they were both, you know, good students as first graders can be. (laughs) I remember uh, they did some standardized test and the next day, you know, we had gotten results and there was a phone call from you know, this friend's parents saying, how did your son do? And, and I just, I was so shocked. I just didn't know what to say, you know, but I basically said, I don't really um, measure my son that way. And it's not something that I am interested in discussing, you know, and, but I remember being so wrapped up, you know, hearing about this child, how he was already in drama and karate and soccer and chess club. And, and I just remember laying in my bed at night saying to my husband oh my gosh we're behind we're behind 
And and luckily, I have a very wise, centered husband who was like, no, we're not. You know, and, and I remember then we did sign our son up for soccer, and he spent the season chasing dragonflies, um, you know, instead of tending the goal, which was his assignment, you know. And I just, like, thought, we were never behind, you know? But it's hard, right? It's I hard. mean, it is, yeah. you know, again, these instincts, they're hardwired. They're reinforced by the culture because um, yeah. there's sort of two parts to this. <clears throat> One of them is let's work in the direction that you're outlining and I'm outlining. And the other one is let's be compassionate with ourselves when we have these reactions. Yes. Because it is so easy to have the reaction of, oh, the other kid's doing better than my kid. And because and, and one of the areas that, you know, as parents, oh, my gosh, the amount of social comparison of who has the, you know, better looking, better behaved or more successful child. Right. And right. and we see it. And, and because schools are so oriented toward, you know, measuring measuring in some way. And, and there's a rationale for that. I, you know, I understand it. Yeah. But 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 it it then has this um unhelpful side effect of making it feel as though we're measuring worth and value right. um, you know a little known fact is that um uh um the 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 very earliest intelligence uh test it was uh, alfred uh, i believe it was alfred binet it was the binet intelligence scales these were the ones that started around uh the very early 1900s and they were developed in france and the idea for intelligence testing in france as binet understood it was well let's measure kids intelligence so we can identify the ones who are lacking in intelligence and we can teach it to them hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you know in that sense yeah, measurement makes sense. We want to find the kids who are struggling so we can help them and teach it to them. But so quickly it becomes converted into a measure of worth and value and particularly, potential. This, yeah, potential and, and feeling good about ourselves or feeling bad about ourselves. And it becomes so painful. So, so you know, simultaneously, we want to work toward loosening this up and being really compassionate with ourselves when we find ourselves getting caught in the social comparisons. Because I, I mean, I, to tell you the truth, I started this book as a self-treatment project um, <laughs> because uh, there I was in my 60s, having spent decades as a psychologist, you know, treating patients, uh, as well as having been in my own therapy for some years earlier on. And I'm very interested in these meditative practices, which come from uh, spiritual traditions that have as their goal, less self-preoccupation, have as their goal, less egotism and, and the like. And after all of that, I was noticing, gosh, my feelings about myself were going up and down all day long every day, still. Yeah. Based on, oh, somebody invited me to speak at a conference. Hey, I'm doing well. Oh, my friend was invited. I wasn't. Oh, collapse. You know, I mean, this is, you know, so, and I thought, you know, how can this be after all these years still being trapped in this stuff? And it's not that I've gotten untrapped entirely, but really taking this on as a project has been helpful because, you know, it become so sensitized to, oh my gosh, look at all these fluctuations, all these moments of, hey, I'm doing okay. No, I'm not. Yes, I am. No, I'm not. Yes. I, you know, <laughs> in the course of a conversation, in the course of a day, in the course of a week, I, I came to notice that 
you know, my main resistance in opening email in the morning is being afraid that I'm going to encounter something that's going to make me feel bad about myself. (laughs) You know, that that's something that will not feel like Ron's doing well. That's going to feel like, you know, oh, something didn't go well and now I have to fix it. So, um, so, so again, the, the pervasiveness of this on the one hand, and we can work to do something um, about it. Definitely, definitely. And, and I think, you know, when we know that we're predisposed towards anxiety and recognizing this may be a piece of it, um, having that self-compassion and, and recognizing that it might take a little more teasing out, that it might, you know, that we have established some patterns of thought that, that will take time and awareness to um, kind of extract ourselves from, but but it's possible to do, and we're also working on it. Um, when you mentioned when you mentioned ahead, ahead. you know your process of writing the book, you know I have created this um, online program called Resilience School, and really you know aimed at helping kids overcome anxiety. And it was so interesting because as I was working on this, I found myself becoming very tense and anxious, and and my my young adult son, you know, asked me this very profound question saying, Mom, is there a way that you could do all the things you're doing, but not feel so anxious about it, like Mm -hmm. that you could do all these same things and just set aside the anxiety. And I was just like, Oh, my goodness, you know, Um, and it's the the irony of all of it is, you know, theoretically, theoretical knowledge gets us to some point it brings that awareness but the implementation is always yeah it's it's a practice over time and 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 the path to doing things with less anxiety is them being less about me you know because because if we're just concerned with you know the product being good or being of use in the world then we're not as anxious if we're concerned how am i going to look what are people going to think about me are they going to like this program or not? And if they like the program, then I'm good and successful and capable right. and, and, and all that. And if they don't like the program, then I'm a failure. It's, it's the, it's the idea that it reflects on us, right. which is, which plays such a huge, uh, huge role in this. I, I want to make sure that we mentioned something about social media because yes. you, you mentioned that in passing and because um, kids have it even harder than I did growing up. Because when I was sitting home on a Saturday night and maybe feeling lonely and maybe, you know, watching TV or hanging out with my parents and thinking, gee, I wonder, I wonder where everybody is. I called a friend or two. I, you know, nobody seemed available. Um, Yeah, that was hard. But having that experience and seeing where everybody is and seeing these curated views of their lives, ah, does that make it harder? You yeah. know, we don't read a lot of social media posts that say, you know, woke up this morning, had the runs again. <laughs> I'm af- you know, I'm afraid I'm going to get a bad performance review at work and my girlfriend's going to leave me. No, it's, <laughs> here I am at this fantastic place doing fantastic things with fantastic people and you're not here. You know, that's what that's what we see on social media. And people, young people, even more than older people are spending their whole days on social media. All they're doing is witnessing curated feeds of other people doing wonderful things. So they're comparing their actual experience with these curated looks. You know, if we were if we were um, 
nations or countries, it would be as though we were reading our crime and poverty statistics while looking at other countries' travel brochures. You know, we'd be left feeling like horrible all the time. And this is a big part of the epidemic of anxiety and depression that we see among young people. And, um, you know, there was a time where psychologists thought, well, we'll have to build their self-esteem so they don't have this problem. And in fact, we contributed to that, you know, all these self-esteem building programs, all the participation awards, all all the stuff that was designed to make kids feel better about themselves, but we got the causal arrow entirely wrong. It's not that, oh, if you can feel good about yourself, then you'll achieve. And um, there's even a project in the state of California, it was the the legislative task force, and they gave them a quarter of a million dollars to raise kids' self-esteem. And the idea was, well, it'll be revenue neutral because kids with good self-esteem will be more productive and will get it back in tax revenues. I mean, they were really all in on this. And the net result was it didn't work at all because the causal error was wrong. It's not that you you make kids feel good about themselves and feel that they're a winner and then they're going to achieve or you know avoid teenage pregnancy or avoid entering into gangs. It's the kids who are doing reasonably well in the world have contacts and connections and they feel okay about themselves and kids who are in the gangs indeed don't feel good about themselves, but you can't fix it by pumping up self-esteem. To fix it, you have to help the kids have the connections, have meaningful experiences, achieve, but not to show off achievement, but to have the joy of of actually applying oneself and accomplishing something through applying oneself. Mm-hmm. that that's what's important but oh my gosh the, you know the world of social media just yeah. amplifies this so it makes it all the more urgent that we really work on shifting gears here definitely and i have several clients in my clinic you know who come in and and this is a huge issue and and you know the parents try to put um filters on they try to take away devices they try to do all these things and kids find their ways around ultimately um, when kids themselves can see, how is this working for you? How, yeah. how are you feeling? You know, um, that can be so powerful to set aside these devices and say, okay, who can I, how can I feel and who can I be separate from this device? And, and so many kids feel so much better when they even just take some planned breaks. As a um, resident, I remember going on this endocrinology rotation where I was on call 24 seven for the um, endocrinologist. And I thought, I I never want to have a job where I have to be on call 24 seven. It was so exhausting. And, but yet our teenagers also, not only are they comparing themselves 24 seven, but they're feel on call to, to be, you know, notified of people's announcements and curated views, you know, so, so I just think, taking some space from social media can be so so valuable the utter genius uh, yeah i don't know if people know, know the history it, it started at harvard actually there's this harvard undergraduate in the early days of the internet who um uh got a hold of the intranet the the internal sites that were available to students and they included you know pictures of each student and you know where they're from and that kind of stuff mm-hmm. and uh this undergraduate invented this program where he would show these pictures and have other students rate them for attractiveness right wow. um, bas- basically alike or you know and uh 
It took several days before there were thousands of hits. It became enormously popular. It took several days before the university could shut it down and ultimately uh, kick out the student uh, who had done it. The student was Mark Zuckerberg. It was called Face Mash, and it was the basis for Facebook. And Zuckerberg's genius was realizing that people will do anything to be able to try to get the thumbs up to try to get the approval to try to get you know um uh retweeted in the case of twitter or 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 likes in the case of these other things and that's why you notice that all social media sites everything youtube everything includes this right. because it is so addictive and psychologists who've studied this they'll they'll put people in the lab and they'll give them simulated social media uh feeds and um They'll use a functional MRI, which is like a video MRI that can show which parts of the brain are activated when, and the nucleus accumbens, which is um, basically the reward center of the brain or one of its reward centers, is activated every time somebody gets a like. There's this little squirt of dopamine, and you know, and it's the same area that that is activated literally with cocaine, right? Literally with gambling, winning, literally yeah. with all of these other other activities. So we have to do your idea of having some kind of structure to um, get off of that hamster wheel and mm-hmm. and or actually get out of that Skinner box where the person's being <laughs> rewarded, you know, constantly for right. their social media presence. Uh, we need to do it because otherwise the addiction just takes over and and, you know, with really sad consequences. Definitely. Now, let's wrap up with the idea of I mean, really, all of this is about mindfulness, but um, maybe you could just tell us briefly, you know, kind of your one-liner definition of mindfulness and how this connects with the sure. whole underpinning of your work in mindfulness. Sure. So so mindfulness is really, it's just an attitude toward, toward experience. You know, there are mindfulness practices, things like following your breath or doing walking meditation, but they're designed to cultivate this attitude toward experience. And the attitude is one of awareness of what's going on in the present moment with loving acceptance. Like, can I be with this? And that relates to a moment of joy, a moment of sadness, the taste of a raisin, the sound of a bird in the background, whatever is happening in consciousness. And what happens as we practice mindfulness is a few things. One of them is we get a little bit of perspective on our thought stream. Psychologists have a fancy name for this. They call it metacognitive awareness, the ability to see that a thought is actually a thought rather than a reality. So the thought that "Mm, I'm failing as a mom is actually a thought rather than a reality. This is quite useful because these thoughts are going to come. We want to have some perspective on it. Mindfulness can help us have this perspective. Mm-hmm. Something else mindfulness can help us to do, mindfulness practices can help us to do, is to be able to be with emotions. Because whether it be sadness or fear or anger, or for that matter, joy or excitement, these exist as bodily events, right? When we're sad, there's this feeling in our stomach or our throat, angry, maybe it's here, scared, usually in the chest. So you can check this out, it's, it's different for different people. But by practicing mindfulness, we develop what psychologists call 
affect tolerance, the ability to be with and accept feelings. And this has enormous potential for setting us free because the self-esteem roller coaster is an emotional roller coaster in which sometimes we feel good and sometimes we feel bad. And if we can't tolerate the downs, if it's like, I can't bear that feeling of being a loser, I've got to do something to make it go away. Well, then we're going to have to scramble and stay addicted and go for the next boost. But if we can manage to just feel it, connect to it, and even begin to inquire, okay, what's this about? So if I feel just for an example, like, oh, you know, my colleague got invited to speak at the conference and I didn't, and I have this crestfallen feeling inside and I really connect to it and say, well, what does that feel like? What's this? So I can feel the feeling I can stay with it. So I don't have to be afraid of it. And then I can realize, oh gosh, you know, this is how I felt when I was one of the last kids picked on the kickball team in third grade. Oh my gosh, this is actually, you know, a longstanding hurt that I never fully, fully integrated or never fully healed. And now that this thing's happening in my current life, it's resonating with that past hurt. And that's why, that's why I'm sinking so deeply. You know, the conference doesn't actually matter. There'll be other conferences or there won't be other conferences. That's not critical. The critical thing is this feeling that, oh, Ron's not good enough. That's what I'm having trouble with. And, and with mindfulness practice, we begin to see these connections. So um, actually, you know, one of the pathways forward that I, that I suggest in the book and it's the one I work with on a daily basis personally is, you know, when these collapses happen and they will happen, can we use each collapse as an opportunity to explore what was our vulnerability here? How did we get hurt similarly in the past, maybe in a way that we haven't fully healed? Because that becomes really, really important to be able to, um, investigate. I'll just give you a quick example from the parenting realm. I was just reading this in part of um, something that I do for training therapists. And uh, somebody was sharing a case of, of a mom who was getting super activated whenever her daughter didn't listen to her. Mm-hmm. And she would get she would get super angry because she felt super hurt. And mm-hmm. in therapy, the mom was able to realize, oh, gosh, she had grown up with a mother who actually didn't listen to her very much as a daughter. Mm -hmm. She felt that that was very painful, a lot of feelings of neglect and that I don't matter, and was realizing that, oh, now when my kid doesn't listen to me, it's like I'm the the daughter again. It's it's, it's tapping into that past hurt. Just one of many examples of the ways in which the current challenge almost always resonates with the past challenge. And mindfulness practices can really help us with that. Um, one more, I mean, they're, they're great. They're the greatest thing since sliced bread. They do a lot of things, but one other thing, one other thing that they do is, um, they, uh, they can really help us with engagement, that flow idea that we were talking about before, because if I'm practicing mindfulness more, when I go skiing, the likelihood that I'm just really into the body and feeling it, whether the skiing is going well in the sense of, you know, looking competent or not, that's not what's critical. But there's, we, it brings us back into the present. And the more that we can be present, the less we're in this evaluative inner spectator mode of, of, of constantly judging ourselves. So, um, so yeah, so mindfulness is one of the tools that we can use uh, throughout in starting to shift from 
comparing ourselves to others and worrying about how we're doing to actually being engaged and connected um, and kind to ourselves. Well, this has been so enlightening and wonderful. And um, as you talked about Mihai Chiksa Mihai, I I have looked at his work as well and and created a little ebook called Parenting with Flow. And and the interesting thing about when we actually can get into flow is that it actually help, helps us perform better, even though hopefully we're able to set that aside as our main goal. But it actually does. No, but do the better. main thing is that we're happier. And yeah. that's I think what we all would wish for. So um, I will also put a link to your book in the show notes. Where can our listeners best find you? Uh, well, generally, so I have a website, which is Dr. Ron Siegel. Um, the, yeah, you could put a link to it so people yeah. get the spelling of Siegel because there's a lot of different ways to spell it. Um, <laughs> and, and, and there you can find uh, all sorts of ways to get into mindfulness practice. There's a lot of free meditations that are on there. Uh, there are a lot of other talks on different topics, including kind of how to use mindfulness practices to work with anxiety, depression, and things. There's more information um, about uh, the book and discussions of, of the themes of um, uh, the extraordinary gift of uh, of being ordinary, and uh, and you can also contact me through that uh, should you want to do that. Thank you so much for being with us, Ron. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for joining me for this episode of the Compassion Parenting Podcast. I'd love to hear your thoughts. What resonated with you? What questions came up? Let's continue the conversation on Instagram at Compassion Parenting or within my free Facebook group, Parenting Well, Raising Compassionate and Productive Humans. Links are in the show notes. If you've gained insight from the time we've shared today, leave a review and subscribe. There's a quick how-to in the show notes. Have a blessed week. May you love yourself, your family, and the world wisely and well.